And what a great update. Thank you guys for sharing. Uh, That's the sermon intro. It actually fits perfectly with our text this morning because we go from the cross and the proclamation of the soldier, this crazy proclamation of the the Roman soldier, surely, behold, this is the Son of God, uh, to kind of the cost of discipleship and these two unlikely stories of folks who are following Jesus at this difficult time during and right after his crucifixion. If the cross, as Josh said, if the scriptures, if the cross, if redemption, then this is part of what it looks like to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. To be on the mission of the kingdom of God. Ordinary people, these women, Joseph of Arimathea, nobodies in a sense, and yet here they are on the mission of the kingdom of God, clinging to Christ and taking courage in Christ because of the work of the cross. And these are two unlikely disciples, as we shall see, who not only stay and are present with Jesus, but act on his behalf. And that's because one of the things that the cross does, whether you're you know, church planting in Montana or you're just trying to love your neighbors well in Santa Fe and not turn them into projects, but you know, care for them and love them as you have been loved by Jesus, One of the things that that happens is that the cross makes us free, free to not have to fix people, free to cease striving, free to not think we always have to be fixing ourselves, but to let the Spirit do the work through the Word to connect us to Christ, whose cross has forgiven us and reconciled us and brought us back to God. I, I love the song that we just sang. I was thinking about this. Oh, my soul will rest on Jesus when Satan's lies are all I hear. Undeserving of forgiveness, there's no mercy for you here. Well, what Satan always does is he either adds to the Bible or he only quotes half the verse. That's what he does. Look at Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4. Because undeserving of forgiveness in, in our own strength, in our own works, in our own nature of sin, that part is true. But the lie is there's no mercy for you here. No, we are undeserving, but because of all of God's justice being poured out on Jesus, because of that wrath being atoned for, because of that sin being dealt with in the finished work of the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, there is mercy for us here at the cross. And that mercy is what drives us to mission. The mercy of God is what sends us out to do these things like the women and Joseph of Arimathea, to cling and to have courage because he is worthy. And so all the risk of the mission of the kingdom of God, all the risk is outweighed by the mercy that comes to us from the Father through the Son. The risk is outweighed because God is worthy and he is faithful and and we know that his promises are sure. I love what Katie said. How do you cling to Christ? You know, in, in these impossible callings that we have. Life, you know, loving our neighbors well, sharing the gospel with the people around us, not doing it in a weird way, not beating people over the head with a 49-pound Bible, but loving them and caring for them and hearing their story in such a way that the Spirit enters in and re-narrates their story. How? It's only because of the faithfulness of Christ. And that's, of course, Josh and Katie's story, my story, your story. The cross of Christ is the glory of God. It is the fulfillment of God's promises to us leading up to the climactic cosmic moment of all history, the resurrection, and the cross is also a calling. 
not only to count the cost, but to step into it. It's not always flashy. We have to be very careful about our idols and our metrics and measurables about what is success in the kingdom of God. Success is is not always measured in the things that we can see. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. It is Jesus' faithfulness to us that then sends us out to be faithful. A long obedience in a single direction toward the cross and resurrection. And we have two components of what that looks like this morning. The first is these brave women. The cross helps them to cling to Christ. Mark names three women, uh, Matthew and Luke. The other two synoptics may name at least one more. And in the entire narrative, there are six named by name between the cross and the resurrection. We see the real power of the gospel here in these women. We have much to learn from these women. These women who were with Jesus in Galilee. We see this in Luke chapter 8. And we're told in Mark's gospel, I love this, that they ministered to Jesus. These ladies ministered to him. Whatever exactly that means. Loved him, cared for him, prayed for him, nourished him, encouraged him. First thing that stands out to me in our text is just that they stay. They stay with Jesus. It says they look. That looking there is is kind of a pregnant word. It's more than just a a passive, you know, bystander sort of observation. They are there staying active and looking. Their eyes are fixed on their Lord, even as he is crucified. Now, we're told they do so at a distance, but this is nothing pejorative. Uh, They wouldn't have been allowed to approach Uh, The proximity of Golgotha, the area of the cross, only soldiers could be there. But I imagine these brave women being about as close as you could be. They will not run. They will not hide. They will not cover. They won't engage in self-protection strategies and defense mechanisms. They stand firm. And so these ladies throughout all time, because of the scriptures given to us, are are known because of the cross, they are known for their presence with Christ in the midst of pain and persecution. That's kind of the definition of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And it, it asks the question of us. Mark is always asking questions. He's always telling stories to ask questions. How are you known? How are you known? How are you known by your friends and your family? Are you the one that always has to be right? Because if you are, you're in good company with me. Are you the one that can be, you know, I don't know, overly controlling or critical or leaning on your own understanding? How will we be known? And yet it's amazing that Mark mentions these women at all, right? You've probably heard this before, but it is worth re-mentioning time and time again. In the ancient Near East, uh, these ladies would have been seen in some ways as kind of the lowest of the low. Not only are they women, but they're Jewish women. And not only are they Jewish women, but they're Jewish women from the Podunk area of the Sea of Tiberias, that nowhere land that we refer to as Galilee. And therefore, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that even the witness of multiple women was not accepted legally in those days. And don't ever say, dudes, don't ever say what Josephus says right here. Because of the levity and boldness of their sex. You see, rabbis patently refused to train or teach women. 
And yet, although Jesus had 12 disciples who were apostles, 12 men who he called to lead and serve the church, he took these women into his rabbinical orbit and atmosphere and empowered them to the work of ministry that he had given them. Now, Rome is no better in these days. In fact, you may know that, especially in Paul's writings, when he writes about the recreation of Eve, women in Christ. It was scandalous to women in the Roman Empire who were under the heavy oppression of not only the government, but often their own husbands and their household. The gospel to them was freedom. We're equal in Christ? Wow. Listen to Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity. He mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged witness to the cross and resurrection, referring to her as this is horrible, a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. The fact that the Gospels describe women, these brave women, at the cross, not fleeing, and as the first witnesses to discover the empty tomb after the resurrection of Christ, is a pointer to the historicity and accuracy and not made-upness of these texts. If the Gospels were apocryphal, if they were myth or legend, if it was a religion you were inventing for man's power and pleasure, of which there were many in Jesus' day, you would never, you would never have had these women as the first witnesses, responsible, as it were, for going to tell and teach the men. And Tim Keller points out that this, again, is just a beautiful picture of the irony of, of God in the upside-down kingdom. In this culture, in this day, these women would have functionally been disregarded. Invisible, as it were, Josh. God delights in the gospel to use the disregarded. He delights to make his power perfect in weakness and make himself visible through his glory and gospel shining through the invisible. These women, three are named, Mary Magdalene, Mary, who's a mom of two, most likely not Jesus' mother, but the mother of James the Younger, and Salome, who some think was the mother of uh, the sons of Thunder and the wife of Zebedee. What we do know is that they've been long-term followers of Jesus and not passively. And what we also know in Mark's text, again, I love this, and there were also many other women. So he names three, but you get the impression, you get the picture in your mind that that there's a lot of women there and they ain't going anywhere. Mary Magdalene is highlighted uniquely in all of the Gospels, not just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John as well. We know from Luke 8 that she was delivered from seven demons. Unless you get all weird and be like, I'm a scientist, congratulations. Me too. All right, take it this way. We know what it's like to have our own demons, don't we? Maybe you don't. Praise the Lord. Go minister to someone who does. We know what it's like to deal with people who struggle and wrestle with their own demons. So whatever this means, whatever lies were being spouted at her and oppressing her, we know this, that Jesus showed up and did all the unthinkable things that you could not do to a woman like this back in those days. He cared for her. He spoke to her. He touched her. Even, even to the extent that it could make him ceremonially unclean. But you see, Jesus didn't need to be afraid of, oh, I got to run back to the temple and get clean. He was the temple. So everywhere he went, he brought clean with him. 
He made clean where he went. And so she was a healed one, a freed one. She had tasted deeply of the power of redemption. She's not going anywhere. And of course, you knew this was coming. What's missing in our text? Where are the men? Where are the men? Where am I? Where is Adam in the garden? I was talking to Roberta Cheek recently. You guys know Roberta is one of our local missions partners who works with CareNet Pregnancy Center. And I love Roberta because she will care for anyone. If, if a woman comes in and says they want to terminate their pregnancy, Roberta is going to love her, care for her. Even if they decide to go that route, she's going to continue with her and follow up with her. Her love is set upon those ladies regardless of what they decide, even if she is attempting to save lives. She told me something recently that was staggering. She said in her experience of the women that come to, to CareNet who are scared and sad and afraid and all these things and possibly wanting to terminate their pregnancy, 80 to 90% of them would be more than willing to keep the baby if the guy were around. That's the elephant in the room. 80 to 90%. If there was just a partner, I mean, you know, he had to be good. He could just be some like homie, boyfriend, fiance, whatever. 80 to 90% would be willing. But so often it's the men who run. In all four Gospels, we're told, and I love this because these guys are writing this about themselves. They know way more than we do just how scandalous all this is that the women are there and they're discovering things and the dudes are gone. They flee. Except for, of course, in John's Gospel where he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved and does make mention of the fact that he didn't leave. That bad. Otherwise, they're gone. Uh, Peter, who's probably informing a whole lot of Mark's Gospel, one of the primary uh, authors behind the gospel of Mark, Peter, also Paul. Peter's telling the story. They are gone. And so brothers, in particular, I think we have some humility here. Some humility about being sons of Adam and wanting to shirk responsibility and run and flee. But we all have that responsibility, men and women. It's a heart check. In the sin of Adam, we all flee, hide, cover, shift, blame, the heart cry of man's heart until it is regenerated is simply this, save yourself. You get a short time on this earth, man. Don't let anything too bad, you know, muck it up for you. Power, pleasure, fun, enjoyment, comfort, security, control. Save yourself. And so the question that the women beg us to ask is what can motivate the cost for men and women of the staying? And it's simply this, that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of our lives, of the risk. He is so worthy. He clings to us that we might cling to him. Because for the men, remember, this isn't a like beat up the dudes Sunday. Because I'd have to be up here with my, you know, penitente rope hitting myself harder than any of you. I'm in here, you're in here. This isn't a beat up the dudes. We know what happens to the dudes. Jesus brings them back. They're horrible at clinging right here, but Jesus clings to them. He brings them back. And then most of these guys actually die martyrs for the gospel. My coach slash counselor, who you guys will hopefully meet, a guy named Jim Pachta out of Dallas, said this to me yesterday. He said, we all long for courage. 
to fulfill the calling that God has put on our life, the calling of kingdom and mission. We long for courage, but courage only comes from faith. It doesn't come from pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Courage comes from faith. But where does faith come from? Faith comes from worship. Faith comes from worship. Even the word worship, an old Anglo-Saxon word, worthy ship. These women cling, they stay because they are clung to. They are gripped by something greater than everything that's going on around them. The glory of God in the work of the Son, their Savior, even their Savior on a cross, is worthy. And they worship Him, which wells up faith within them, which gives them the courage to stay. Now, we also see this courage in Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Briefly, I think it's important that we just remember that this guy kind of put his life on the line for Jesus. Have you ever heard a whole sermon on Joseph of Arimathea? Well, you're not going to hear one now, Uh, but but you should because it's really, he's an amazing character in the text. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus, who John mentions. These uh, two men, and so Joseph in this sense, are members of the Sanhedrin, the very same legal body, this Jewish council that has just put Jesus to death by condemning him to a capital crime, a crime of sedition. He is a traitor against Rome. And so for Joseph of Arimathea to go to Pilate and say, give me the body, this was a huge no-no. This is courage. This is the courage of a disciple and a follower that only comes because of the cross. So again, remember, everything is on the foundation of grace. But on the foundation of grace, Joseph of Arimathea is pretty amazing. I mean, he could have been killed by Pilate immediately. Uh, He could have been found out by the Sanhedrin. Certainly, he is putting his reputation on the line. Now, men and women, imagine your work and your life, whatever you do for a living, which, by the way, is not who you are. But as we know, often our identity and our vocation are deeply tied together, right? Imagine that a guy who has claimed to be the Jewish Messiah has just been crucified by Rome. Most of us, myself included, if I had been there, probably would have gone, wow, that stinks. (laughs) Uh, That was a fun three years, I guess, like... We went hard up in in Galilee, saw some cool stuff. I I don't know how it all happened, but he's dead. He's gone. Paul says, you know, we, we wouldn't die for somebody. Paul says, for a good man, you might even dare to die, but probably not is the implication. And yet God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses, Christ died for us. Joseph of Arimathea puts his entire reputation as a respected council member of the Sanhedrin on the line. Some of us need to be honest about the idolatry of our reputation. We would rather be respected in the eyes of the world than lay down our reputation for the eyes of God for Christ's sake. So he has a ton to lose. And yet Mark says he's looking for the kingdom. He is looking for something beyond the religious system in which he exists and the oppression of Rome. He is a hungry man. And this leads us back to, of course, the grace of God. Because in Mark's story, the men are basically insiders, these two men, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The women and the Roman soldier are complete outsiders. And yet, what do we see? 
It's that Holy Spirit balloon. We see God at work in all of them so that no one can boast in their standing or in their status so that there is no reliance on place or position. When God enlivens these hearts so that the women boldly stay, so that Joseph of Arimathea encouraged boldly goes, it is all by grace. The text tells us he takes courage. One translation says he takes courage with both hands. Courage, right, comes from the French and the Latin, to take heart. The heart of Joseph of Arimathea is filled with faith, faith that is risky and worth risky what is most worthy, most worth risking for what is most worthy. And this courage of Joseph of Arimathea's has legs. It acts, it sacrifices. His family name, his family tomb, All these things are laid on the line because, again, the mission of the kingdom is not about what you need to do. It is about the worthiness and the glory of what Christ has done. And Deuteronomy 21-23 mandated the burial of a corpse on the day of death. It's especially important at this time because it's Thursday uh, or it's Friday, right? And you're about to hit dusk, begin the Passover. So it's the day of preparation, sacrificing of the lambs right before Passover. And there were three options for burial. You could dig a trench grave. You could put a body in a stone box, sarcophagi. Or you could put a body in a stone-cut tomb. Only the wealthiest people had these stone-cut tombs. They were very expensive and very rare, and they were used for entire families. So Again, it's, it's hard. It's a little hard for us in our context to understand what would it mean to not only put your reputation, but your entire family name on the line? What has to be that big, that beautiful, that worthy, that glorious, that you wouldn't think twice, but you would say, I'm going to serve my Lord, come what may. In that way, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, again mentioned in John's gospel, are courageous. <laughs> Touching the body of Jesus would have made them unclean. And by the way, respected men don't do this work. It was for women and slaves, servants, to do the work of preparing the body with the shroud and the burial spices. Do you see what's happening here? The very same thing Jesus has done for them, he is doing, they are doing for him. That's what it means to be a disciple or a follower. As you've been loved, go and love. As you've been cared for and nourished and cleansed and made free, Go and bring that good news to the world around, around you. So Mark's final question for us is simply, what do we cling to? What do we cling to? When fear comes, cost comes, what will we find courage in? Tim Keller puts it this way, you know, we... We may have various issues with stuff in the scriptures. I know I do. Let's talk about the Bible. There's a couple things in the Bible that I'm like, really? Okay. I guess that has to stay in there, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It absolutely, I mean, what I'm saying is we all have little things that, that may trip us up or we have friends, right? Well, let's talk about the end times or the age of the earth or this, that, or whatever. Here's the point that Keller makes. Whatever your issue may be, if God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, then he's the king and it doesn't matter because everything he said is true. And if God didn't deal with our sin on the cross and didn't give us new life through the power of the resurrection, then who cares about anything that Jesus said 
at all. But family, in the finished and final work of Jesus, right in that moment, I'm sure, when the disciples who fled were asking, who do we cling to? We've had no courage. How do we get back in? We can't be loved. We've messed up. It's beyond the pale. In that very moment, it's the Spirit that comes by the grace of God, pointing us to the cross, lifting up our heads and reminding us that Jesus clings to us, that he already took courage on your behalf so that in your fear and weakness and cowardice, you were never left or forsaken. Indeed, you are more than that. You are loved. So again, it is the cross that is both the why we want to cling and have courage and the how we can. It is the worthy one who calls us into a beautiful mission that is already accomplished. So let us cling and find courage at the cross of Christ and on the mission of God's kingdom, let us go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, glory be to your name. We are so thankful for the gospel of your grace to us. Thank you for the wonderful encouragement from Josh and Katie, both in the class this morning and in their update during the service about the gospel being at work in the world. God, we want to be like those women. Brothers, let us pray. By the power of the Spirit, make us like those brave women who stayed. They didn't stay in their own strength. They didn't stay to earn God's favor. They didn't stay to make themselves righteous. They stayed because they'd been loved already and justified. And grace had been given and grace kept them there. We want to be like Joseph and Nicodemus, who even to the extent of losing everything, their name and family, the whole deal being on the line, took courage from the cross and acted to prepare the body of our Lord that he might be buried, that all would know he was truly buried so that on the third day when he rose again, all would know God truly did it. Jesus, would you nourish us at this table, this Lord's Supper table? Would you cling to us here? I know there are some of us today who are struggling. Maybe seven demons, maybe 70, maybe one. Stuff that goes through our head, lies, thoughts. Or maybe we're just too blind to see any of it. Forgive us of our religious self-righteousness. The most putrid kind of all. Nourish us at this table. Cling to us, Christ. Show us your courage here that you were torn apart in two to make a path to God. You are the way, the truth, the life that by grace alone, through faith alone, we might walk through. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.